you'd think that since I forgot the invocation this morning that it would be earlier, but it's not. These things happen. We're in Colossians 2. Uh, we'll be reading from, uh, I've got my glasses, of course, 8 through 18. That's not true. 15. See, all those little numbers. It's a bad thing. But uh, our sermon text itself, what we're focused on, is going to be verses 11 through 12. Uh, keep in mind, this is a uh, difficult passage, uh, not just, um, well, to be under- understood, but in sense to uh, submit to. No, Steve, I'll, I'll do without your glasses for now. Thank you for the offer, however. They're on my desk. It's all right. It's been one of those mornings. It's been one of those mornings. From the Word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, in many ways I feel uh, woefully insufficient for these things. But you reminded Judah after the exile that the promises they received would not be accomplished by Judah's might and power. They would be done by your Spirit. And so we need your Spirit this morning to illumine the Scriptures, to apply them to us, to enable us to believe them, to sanctify us by them, to stir us up to worship for what you have done for us. And may the Spirit do these things and more through Jesus' name we ask. Amen. In preparation for (coughs) uh, this sermon, I happened to listen to a couple of sermons, one of which was by Sinclair Ferguson. And as in the course of his sermon, he talks about going to preach at a Lutheran seminary in Austin, Texas. And he speaks uh, there of the baptismal font, which had words engraved in it that we don't happen to have in ours. I, at least I haven't checked recently, but there's no words there. No one's put a tag on it or anything since last I know. But on, on the baptismal font in this particular uh, worship sanctuary for the denomination, or sorry, the, the seminary, was it in Latin, I'm not going to say the Latin, but the English, I am a baptized man. And the reason that they put those words on the baptismal font was because that was, in a sense, a slogan of Martin Luther. 
It was something that he reminded himself on a fairly regular basis, particularly within the context of temptation or trial. He would be tempted toward weakness and fear or to commit a sin, and he would remind himself, I am a baptized man. He pointed to his baptism and in the significance of that baptism to draw upon the strength necessary to resist sin and to sustain himself in the midst of weakness. That sounds sort of strange to us Presbyterians and non-Presbyterians in this room, doesn't it? We don't talk of like that. But perhaps we should talk that way a little more than we currently do. Paul here has been writing, of course, to the Colossians who, uh, you know, after Epaphras has come and preached the gospel and they've believed the gospel, what has happened is some false teachers have kind of come into the church and they're, they're trying to say, yes, uh, you need Jesus, but you also need some other things if you want to have a full, vibrant Christian experience. And so what Paul has just told them, what we talked about last week, was that they are, they have been filled in Christ. And so the question that arises necessarily is, how did that happen? And this is a really a, in some ways, a transitional section because Paul is about to move into sanctification. And he's first going to address the faulty ways of sanctification that were taught by the false teachers. And then he's going to teach the proper understanding, biblical understanding of sanctification. And all of that rests on what we're going to talk about this morning, about circumcision and baptism. Bet you didn't think, didn't see that coming, did you? All right. The big idea this morning is that in Christ, we receive all that baptism signifies for sanctification. I'm doing this in a sense of uh, in, in kind of a repetition of remember, and that will become a little more clear. But essentially, Paul is telling them to remember what took place. Remember that you were circumcised in Christ's circumcision. As I mentioned, Paul is about to identify the true source of sanctifying power. Is there anyone in the room that needs that this morning? I think that would be all of us. And he points to this and he says, how are you filled in Christ? He says, in him also you were circumcised. He's saying to them that when you were united to Christ, that idea of, again, in him, in union with him, Paul's shorthand, when, when you were joined to Christ, you were circumcised. And they would probably be thinking, I was. Okay. Circumcision. That's probably one of the things that these other teachers had begun to teach to the Colossian believers. It it was different from what we find in the letter to the Galatians. There it was, you must be circumcised in order to be a Christian. But here it's the sense is more like you ought to be circumcised to have the fullness of your salvation. And so you're saved, but you have, there's more you can have if you're circumcised. And what Paul is saying is, You already have it all. You already have been circumcised. You have that to which circumcision points, because he mentions you were circumcised with what? That which is done without hands. What is he talking about? He's talking about the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision. Let's think about it for a second. 
Circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. We get those two words, sign and seal, from Romans chapter 4. What's a sign? We have a sign right there. What does it say? Exit. Now, if I were to walk over here, I have the sign that says exit, but that's not the exit, is it? That's just a sign. The sign points to something. There's something signified. That would be this door. This is the exit. There's a, there's a difference we talk about between the sign and the thing signified. The sign points to something. The sign is not the reality itself. And so circumcision pointed to something. It was not the real deal itself. The, the passages that we read, or that, rather that Dick read from Deuteronomy this morning, indicate to us that there is a thing called the circumcision of the heart. And it's interesting that the, the, the way in which the first passage says, you are to circumcise your hearts, but then the second passage, which comes from the, the, the promise of the restoration after exile, says that God will circumcise your hearts. And in a sense, there's a, we have a responsibility to be circumcised of heart, or they did. We do too, but hold on there. There's a responsibility, but there's also the inability to actually do it, and God himself must do it. And how, part of how you know that you have been circumcised of heart, I think, flows out of that, particularly that second passage, because then you love the Lord your God. Then you begin to uh, walk in his ways. You, you call upon him with all of your heart. Okay, You're restored to him. And so... In order really to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord your God, something has to happen. And in the Old Testament, that was called the circumcision of the heart. That's what the physical circumcision pointed to. It did not have every, it was not only about land. It was not only about belonging to uh, the family of Abraham. It was also about being the Lord being your God and the God of your children. And notice as well in Deuteronomy 30 when it talks about, he will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children. That was the promise that he had made in that particular place. Okay, So in a sense, it points to the circumcision of the heart which represents regeneration and the removal of the sinful nature that one may have a relationship with God. That is what circumcision pointed to. And what Paul is saying to the Colossian believers is that they have experienced the reality that the sign pointed to despite having not experienced the sign. How? He continues by saying, by the circumcision of Christ. And now here is where the text gets difficult. You could go in a couple of different ways with that genitive. Does it mean that uh, this is the circumcision that Christ performs? Or is it referring to the circumcision that Christ underwent? Those are very different. Is he merely saying, and even, I shouldn't even say merely, merely, 
that this is the circumcision that Christ gives you, that he performs in your heart, or is he saying that this is by the power of the circumcision that Christ himself underwent? Not referring to the sign on, you know, on the eighth day after he was born, but referring to something else. First, Paul here, the focus is on union with Christ. In other words, what was his becomes ours by virtue of being united to Jesus. And so I think that rules, you know, the whole context is about this idea of union. And so I think that rules against the idea of merely the one that he performs. Additionally, there's, there's something else because he then goes on to talk about this being the putting off the body of flesh. I don't think it's our body of flesh that's put off, but Christ's body of flesh. Genesis 17. Moses, Moses writes, as God told Abraham, what was to happen to those who were not circumcised. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. So any male Jews who do not receive this covenant sign, he says, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so the penalty for not receiving the sign of circumcision, which means to cut around, is to be cut off, to be excluded from sort of Talonic justice that we often find there in Genesis. In Isaiah 53, we read this about a promise of the coming Messiah, the uh, servant of the Lord. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, Christ was cut off for us. The language that is used for the curse of breaking the covenant of circumcision. And so Christ's circumcision was not what took place eight days after he was born. It's not the one that Paul's talking about here. The circumcision that Paul is talking about right here is the death of Christ upon the cross. That thing that that circumcision, that sign pointed to. It pointed to the ultimate circumcision, which was Christ being cut off for his people. Christ was cut off for us in his death. That is the circumcision that matters. And that is the one we partake of by virtue of our union with Christ. That idea, you can find it all over the place in Paul. For instance, Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Again, because of my union with Christ, I've died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we, we see this idea present throughout Paul's writings. I've been circumcised. Because I am in him who was circumcised. The sign 
pointed to his being cut off so that we can be circumcised of heart. Okay? Our regeneration, in other words, our being born again, our, our coming alive to God rests upon the death of Christ, also known as his circumcision. Catching that. In other words, he was put off, or rather he put off the body of flesh on the cross precisely so that we can put off the body of flesh when it rises up in temptation. There's a connection between his putting off flesh and our now being able to put the works of the flesh to death in the power of the Spirit. We can't do it unless we're united to Christ in his death. Paul says. And so the circumcision of the heart done in union with Christ puts off our sinful nature. Secondly, remember that you were buried in Christ's baptism, Paul says. And so not only did we die in Christ, but Paul says that we were buried in Christ. So it's buried with him in baptism, Paul says. Again, that language of union with Christ. So we were, we were be died with Christ. Now Paul says, you are buried with Christ. And now when it says in baptism, again, it gets tricky. Is there a parallelism that should, just as it was the, sorry, the circumcision of Christ, are we now to think it is the baptism of Christ? Or is this referring to our baptism? It gets tricky, doesn't it? Baptism as a sign, sign, signifies or points us to Christ's baptism on the cross. Again, it points us to his death for sin. We see Jesus speaking about his death on the cross there in Mark 10. That's why we read from Mark 10. He speaks of that, this cup that I must drink, this baptism I must undergo. He's speaking about the cross, He refers to the cross as his baptism. His water baptism, although we don't consider it Christian baptism, that's a sermon for another day, not going there today. His water baptism anticipated his real baptism upon the cross, for it is there that he is overwhelmed with the curse. And Sinclair Ferguson notes that probably overwhelmed is a better way of understanding baptizo than immersed. When you, especially when you think about the, the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2, it's, it's defined as, being, as it being poured upon us. And so the idea more of being overwhelmed. Jesus was overwhelmed with the curse upon the cross such that he cried out, My God, my God, have you forsaken me? Okay. But his baptism upon the cross, he was overwhelmed there so that we can be overwhelmed by the Spirit at regeneration, at conversion. And so essentially, what we see here is that his circumcision is the same as his baptism. Now, there are a lot of people who have a lot invested in not seeing a connection between circumcision and baptism. And I've seen all kinds of linguistic gymnastics to avoid the implications of this text. You cannot ultimately separate, 
the sign from that which is signified, which is kind of what some of the linguist, uh, linguistic and logistical gymnastics take place. They try to separate those two things. Okay. Um, this, both signs point to the same thing. Amy and I were, were going to a concert in Tampa, Florida, and she probably hates this story because it's one of those stories in which I look really bad, but I'm not looking about that part of the story. If you've ever driven in Tampa, Florida, you will soon discover that it is a nightmare, that they really don't want any tourists or out-of-town people to ever go there, and if they do, they, the signs will, will, will be there so that you never want to go back. Okay? So we're looking for, on our ticket it says, the St. Pete Times Forum. That's what it says. But all of the street signs say something different. And they, and it depends upon when the street sign has been put up because this particular building had gone by many names, including the Ice Palace, among others. And so you've got to know the history of the building to know if the sign is pointing to the right place. But I'll give you a hint. If you ever go to Tampa, don't look for the signs for the Ice Palace. Follow the signs to the aquarium because they're right next to each other. Okay? But you don't learn this until you get there. <laughs> okay? Different signs, but they, they pointed to the same thing, the same building. That's just what we have here. In the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision points to the same thing that the New Covenant sign, baptism, points to. Okay? They're different in this respect. Circumcision looked ahead to what was to come. And because the blood of Christ had not yet been shed, it was a bloody sign. But baptism, precisely because the blood of Christ had already been shed, is not a bloody sign, but it looks back upon the work that Christ did. And so there's different chronological perspectives on it. But they both look at the same event, the cross. And circumcision, well, rather, hold on, the, the, before I get there, the, the, the signs don't give us the reality. Remember this. There's the sign and the thing that is signified. It is union with Christ that gives us the reality. And sometimes we can so push the sign that we think that everything offered by the sign actually comes to us at the moment of the sign. For instance... Shortly after my conversion, hanging around BU, um, hey, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know anything. But there are these people on the elevator saying, oh, we've got a Bible study, won't you come? So I go, cool. What I didn't know was that it was a cult. For those of you in that area, perhaps the name Boston Church of Christ rings a bell. Okay? No, it doesn't. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And so what one of their teachings was, was that baptism was necessary for salvation. And they're essentially saying that though you might have faith, you are not saved until you were baptized. Okay? And that was actually the issue that I, that, that 
alerted me to the fact that these people have a little bit of a problem. And that was the, the main issue that I, that I, cause they were telling me that, you know, they're the only church. That when you go back home for the summer, you know, you have to come back here to worship on Sundays. I'm like, what are you nuts? Because no one else was properly baptized. They're not Christians. They're confusing the sign in that which it signifies, as if they come together at the same time. But for everybody, they're separated. They're separated by time. If you convert as an adult, you believe and receive the fullness in Christ before you're baptized, right? If you're baptized as a child, you receive the sign before you receive that which it points to. I can't think of anyone who received both the sign and that which it signifies at the exact same moment. In circumcision, the sign often preceded the reality, and God was not offended by that. He, in fact, commanded it. So that's part of why I think God is not offended by infant baptism. It follows the same plan, because it's talk- the signs point to the same thing. And so our gospel identity, which is necessary for sanctification, says that not only am I dead with Christ, but I'm buried in Christ. Because of baptism. Thirdly, remember, you were raised in Christ's resurrection. Paul continues his thought with what ends up as really being sort of a transitional clause that's going to fit into next week's sermon, but we're going to tackle part of it today. That we were raised with him. Again, he uses that union in Christ language. We were raised when Christ was raised. There's no other way to understand that. Even for the Colossians, though they may have been alive when Jesus was raised from the dead, they were in a different geographic location. It's not talking about being physically raised, but in his physical resurrection, Christ's physical resurrection, they, because of their union in Christ, were spiritually raised. Galatians, uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, we see the same thing. He uses a lot of the same language that we're going to talk about next week, how they were dead in, in their sins and trespasses. And what happened to them? They were made alive with Christ. Regenerated. Same thing we talked about in the first point with regard to circumcision. They are regenerated with Christ. And so, Because we are united with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, and as a result, we experience newness of life in the Spirit that empowers obedience. Paul goes there once again in Romans 6. And when he speaks of this, it's easy for us to think he's talking about baptism, the sign, but in reality, he's talking about the real thing it points to, okay? Spirit baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, uh, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so there in Romans 6, he talks about the death, the burial, and again, the resurrection with Christ. And the, the 
importance of what he's talking about here, because he's, he's again building this case in Romans 6 for our sanctification. We have been raised not just in the same way as our old life, but in a newness of life. We have resurrection power because of God's Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's supposed to play out in how we live so that we are putting sin to death. We're walking in greater and greater obedience over time because we've been raised from the dead. And so the question which obviously arises is, when did this happen for them and for us? And Paul here does something that is great by reminding us. This is, again, it's not about the sign. The power is not in the sign because it says, he says, through faith. It is not the mere application of the sign, but by faith taking hold of that which the sign promises to those who believe. And so again, we have to recognize that faith can either precede the sign in the case of converts, or it can follow the sign in the case of covenant children. In Amy's case, in my case, it was as professing Christians. In the case of our children, when they were born or adopted, however the case may be. Okay? But the sign preceded the faith, and some of them have already expressed the faith, and we trust that all of them will by God's mercies. Okay? And so the sign is about what Christ does, what Christ did. It's not about my response to what Christ did. Faith receives all that the sign offers. So it says through faith, but what is it what we're supposed to trust in? And Paul has talked about this in different places of this letter uh, of, of what we trust in, and here he, he adds to it. Okay? This is not the only thing, but here he adds to it by saying, in the, one, or the powerful working of God which might be an odd phrase for some of us. But what's he referring to? The circumcision and baptism of Jesus upon the cross. His ascension, uh, sorry, his resurrection from the dead. That powerful working of God. The saving acts of Jesus Christ as the substitute for sinners. God worked powerfully in that circumcision or baptism of Jesus and his resurrection. That's what we trust in. That's what we rely upon. That it was not incidental, not just something that happened, but that God saves us through that which happened. But what Sinclair Ferguson does in the latter part of his sermon on on this text, he says, is that we often suffer from a spiritual amnesia, you and I. We forget who we are. We forget who we are in Christ. Some people in commenting upon yesterday's uh, football game have said that Eli Manning forgot who he was in the latter parts of the game. That, that Eli forgot, not Eli, sorry, Peyton. Wrong Manning. Because Peyton ain't man, ain't, I mean, Eli isn't Peyton. 
They may look alike, but they're not identical. Um, but Peyton forgot who he was. He forgot that he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. He forgot that when the game is on the line, the ball should be in his hand. It shouldn't be dished off to a second-rate running back when it's third down, and you have to get the first down. He and his coach forgot who they were dealing with, that he was Peyton Manning, who, as much as I don't want to admit it, is one of the best quarterbacks. I think there's someone better, but that's irregardless. We can be like that. We can forget who we are in the midst of temptation and in the midst of trial. We forget that I'm a baptized man, meaning I've been killed. I've been, I died with Christ. I was buried with Christ, and I've been raised with Christ. We forget that. And as a result, we often fall prey to that temptation and fall into sin. And so with Martin Luther, we need to to begin to perhaps cry out, I'm a baptized person. Not the sign, the reality. Remembering that you died to sin, that you've been buried with Christ, but you didn't stay there. You've been raised with him to newness of life. That's who you are. Remember, that's who you are. That's what he has done for you. And so we are to cry out when we're tempted. We are to cry out when we're afflicted. We're to cry out when we're discouraged. In other words, talk back to it. Paul Tripp, in uh, the latest book of his that I read, says that, you know, you're the person that you listen to the most, meaning you talk to yourself an awful lot, okay? And sometimes you speak lies to yourself. You know, I really need that if I'm to be a happy person. You know, I need that sin to make my life complete. Uh, you know, I have to get my way if the ministry is going to prosper. You know, we, we speak these lies to ourselves sometimes. And what he would say is you need to speak the gospel truth to yourself more than you speak lies to yourself. And that's exactly what Martin Luther was doing, speaking gospel truth to himself. As, as Jack Miller and Jerry Bridges way, he was preaching the gospel to himself that way. That's all he's doing. I'm a baptized man. I'm one who's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all that is. But that is essential as a foundation for us as we think about sanctification. And so our fullness from which we grow into maturity in wisdom and in obedience is rooted in our union with with Christ who died, was buried, and rose again. We participate in that saving work by virtue of our union with Christ by faith. Baptism, just like circumcision before it, points to his saving work. And so, like circumcision, that sign can be applied either before someone partakes of it or after someone partakes of it. The reality. Baptism calls us to trust in and live in light of the reality of Christ crucified, to live like a baptized person. Are you? Do you live like a baptized person? Or do you live like someone who has never known the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.
Father, I marvel that you should send your son to become a man, to be crucified, dead, and buried. The tomb calls forth our adoring wonder, for it is empty, and Christ is risen. Grant it to us to die with him that we may rise to new life. For we ought to be as dead and buried to sin, selfishness, and the world. And turn our hearts to the love that you have displayed in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so keep us fixed there, that our fears would fade. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.